Hey guys, welcome to episode number 10 of Seeking Witchcraft. This is Ashley. And this is Allison. We are going to be talking today about some random witchcraft things. <laughs> um, this is going to just probably be a pretty short episode. We're just going to talk about some random stuff that people have wanted to know a little bit more about. That And um, yeah, just go from there. Cool. Yeah. So let's dive into our first topic here. We have crystals. Yeah, I don't know as much about crystals, unfortunately. I don't work with them too much in my own personal practice. I do have a whole little box of crystals, um, but personally, yeah, I don't know too much. Allison told me, like, some cool things she does with crystals, though, when she buys them. Yeah, so when it comes to crystals, I don't use them a lot in my practice, but I feel like anybody witchy that you meet, you can kind of tell if they're surrounded by crystals, that they're, like, into pagan stuff in general. Um so I feel like a lot of people collect them and it's because they kind of carry energy like they are chunks of the earth and they absorb different types of energies and preserve it kind of so that's sort of the concept behind people using them in their practice is they want to like harness the energies preserved in these rocks and use them to help further enhance their practice so the way that I choose crystals like some people will research ahead of time and literally like when they're going to look for herbs to use in like a potion or for a spell like they'll research like the properties of sage like protective okay I need a protection spell I'm gonna go to the store and get some sage some people do the same thing with their crystals where they'll be like all right I need something positive to bring light and joy into my life I'll find citrine and then they'll go to a rock shop and find a hunk of citrine to use some people like me will go to a store not necessarily looking for a stone, but then I will choose whatever I'm drawn to and research it after the fact. And so um, I feel like for me this helps me like feel out the energy of the stone before I even know anything about it, before I even know what it's called. Um, although always make sure to check the title of your stone before you buy it because some like obsidian and onyx and stuff like that can like look really similar but have slightly different properties so you want to make sure you know exactly what it is you're using so that you use it properly going forward but I'll choose the stone not necessarily knowing what its properties are based off of what energy vibe I get off of it and then later I'll research and I'll see if my initial impression was consistent with what the stone actually um like what its properties are officially as recorded by other crystal aficionados and practitioners and stuff so that's sort of my onion on it (laughs) (laughs) that's some real witchcraft shit right there Mm -hmm. (laughs) in terms of like cleansing crystals um there's a lot of people who might put them out by moonlight but i will say if you do that especially this is more of you if you kind of just keep it there and like you don't take it out once the sun comes out that can actually bleach the color out of your crystal so be careful with that um some crystals also don't do well in water so if you're trying to use moon water to clean it like selenite for example will dissolve in water um some crystals also aren't great with salt being used to cleanse them either so um what i've heard the best thing to do with crystals and i think i might have referenced this in a previous episode um, is to tune them with or cleanse them with bells. Um, and the reasoning for that is because the crystals are supposed to have some sort of frequency with them. And when you want to cleanse them, you want to get them back to the normal frequency they should be. And by ringing a bell, it should be able to knock off some of that stale energy. Um, but again, crystals aren't like super my forte. I mean, I do have a box of them. <laughs> like I think most witches will. Um, you know, I do have, of course, like my clear quartz and my rose quartz and my citrine and amethyst. But um, 
yeah, I don't use them too much. I know a lot of people will also meditate with crystals, um, so that's kind of a way that they'll use them. Sometimes people will also program spells into their crystals or like intentions of something they want to do. So if they want a crystal that's maybe going to give them a little bit of energy, they might do a spell for like motivation or something like that um, to have the energy to do whatever it is they need to do. So they might you know, try to put their intentions into a piece of citrine, which is known to help with energy boosting and then carry it around with them in order to, you know, get that property out of it. So a lot, there's a lot of different things you could do with it. Um, Allison's idea of see, like picking one and seeing if it, you know, fits with what you're really <laughs> needing for it is also great. Um, but yeah, lots of different things you could do with crystals. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, they're great for storing energy and like any like... N- any way that you would want to like manifest a spell and carry it with you like it's great to just and people don't usually question if you're wearing a crystal it's just a piece of decorative jewelry but it can really store a lot of whatever you're trying to take with you so a helpful tool in any practice yeah and one other thing I will say is make sure when you're buying a crystal like it's a I would say try to get a real one if you can like you can go to Michael's and they say genuine gemstones on them but I'm Mm kind of like iffy with those like Listen, I'm not a big crystal person, but I will say I went to Michael's the other day and was looking at the genuine gemstones that they had of, like, the amethyst. And I remember picking it up, and I was thinking, wow, this looks, like, really sad. Like, it just doesn't feel right. And a lot of times those come in, like, prepackaged boxes where, like, you can't even touch the stone when you buy it. And for me, like, I like to – if you give me a jar full of, like, amethyst stones, I will go through each one and hold – and, like, pick which – amethyst in particular gives me like I feel like is consistent with my energy and like flows with me best and I will choose that one and so it's great if you can like hold the stone in your hand and really feel its properties before you make the decision yeah I do the same and uh, sometimes too I see a lot of these little bottles you can buy with like the crushed bits of gemstones personally I think those are cool for like aesthetic reasons but I don't really see those as practical if you are trying to use crystals because personally I like to hold them if I'm using them and if it's just little bits of a little tiny gemstone and it's in a little tiny bottle you know unless I'm gonna crush it up or something or put it like in a little mojo bag or like whatever I I don't know I personally don't really see them being super useful um and super practical if you can just get the actual stone itself I would recommend that Mm -hmm. oh and one more you made me think of this when you're talking about using them in meditations um if you do any chakra work, stones can be really great for that, like, to um, correspond with the different chakras. If you want to focus and really meditate on one in particular that's clogged up for you, if you, you know, are having trouble with, like, your heart chakra or whatever, for instance, and, like, you get an emerald or jade or something like that to help you move the energy and focus on that spot in particular, like, that can be very helpful in your practice. Yeah, and that could potentially be a segue into a new topic if you want to talk about chakras. Oh, yeah, we can do a little quick nugget on chakras. Um, Yeah, so there's seven chakras, and really you could like go into a lot of depth and spend an entire day talking about each one. And a great way to get familiar with your chakras as they are in your body, it's like a muscle that you don't even think about most of the time until you really practice breathing into it and then suddenly you're like you can't believe you ever weren't aware of your chakras (laughs) um but yeah there's seven of them so starting at the bottom this one is associated with the color red it's the root chakra there's an official like um like title for each one in a symbol and stuff which i don't have memorized but you can easily find that online um the root chakra has to do with 
all basic human drive things. So like sex, food, shelter, all those things are heavily rooted in your root chakra. Um, Like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, kind of. Yes, yes, exactly. Like you can't move up on your, up the line of your chakras until you've got this one solid um, and it's located right at the base of your tailbone. So if you're sitting pretzel style, it'll be like the one that's like where your butt meets the floor, like in the back. Like all these kind of run like a string up and up and down your spine sort of. So, but also they run like through that plane of your body, if that makes sense. <laughs> so it's everything that's like on that bottom level. And that's very symbolic of all your bottom level, base level needs um, and drives. And... Next up the line is an orange chakra, which is called your sacral chakra, and it is about two inches in from your belly button and two inches down, and this one you might see come up in different magical meditations. It is seen as, like, what is basic and animal about yourself, but slightly up a level, so it's still connecting with this old, very earthy part of who you are as a human being, but it's a little bit more mystical and magical than that. So if you're sometimes you'll see in different yoga or pagan practices doing like a tree meditation where you imagine you envision your roots spreading into the ground and then your branches spreading up into the sky. And when you harness those energies, you pull them back into your body and you hold them in your sacral chakra which is the center of the magic in your body. So, um, yeah, that's like probably the most abstract of the chakras. I have a hard time describing it, but it's so important. So the more you look into that one, the better, but, um, definitely. Yeah. (laughs) Next up the line is the yellow chakra, which is your solar plexus. And that is like right under your lungs, like where your diaphragm would be. Like right, if you feel for the base of your ribs, that like squishy part, like right under it, sort of between it, that's where your solar plexus is. And it's kind of a transitional chakra. It's like where your base needs transform into your intellectual self. Um, And so sometimes this chakra can get backed up if you're having trouble um, turning your thoughts into actions and stuff like that. So it's very much like a place of like where the sky meets the ground, where where your feet hit the sidewalk, kind of where you turn your thoughts into what it is you plan to do today. Um, next up is your heart chakra, which is green, and it is very obviously right over your heart. I mean, like, you know, they say your heart's like towards the left side. The heart chakra is really in the middle following that consistent line of the spine, but it's also along that entire plane. So it's all kind of throughout that area of your heart and lungs. Um, and yeah, like I said, it's green. That's why it can be associated with, like I said before, things like jade and emerald. Um, and the heart chakra is pretty self-explanatory. It has to do with all things emotional in your life. And even though we know now that like most of like your emotions happen in your brain, like we know this now with modern science, but we feel a lot in that chest area. And that could have something to do with it being where our lungs are, where so much like blood flows, where it's a place with a lot of circulation. So when we're feeling something intense, our heart races and we feel the emotion in our chest. So um, that's how you kind of make sense of that. But yeah, if you're if you're having trouble emotionally or connecting with someone like relationships and things like that, a lot of times that'll be what stops up your heart chakra. 
Um, and the way you sort of get your chakras moving again is by doing different breathing meditations with, with or without crystals where you're really focusing on that one area of your life. It sounds really like hippy-dippy abstract. Like, <laughs> breathe into your chakra. Like, what the fuck do you mean breathe into it? Like, But like, you, it's one of those things where it's like meditation. The first few times you're going to be like, this is bullshit. I don't think it's working. And then once you practice it a few times, you might actually start to feel like, yeah, I do feel my heart opening up a bit more. I feel, you know, that part of my body, it starts to feel like the energy is moving again. Like when I breathe, it feels like I'm actually getting oxygen in, like as opposed to just like breathing and thinking about that part of your body as opposed to like actually breathing into it. Yeah. I mean, I've had massages where, uh, masseuse has, masseuse has been like at different parts of my body and been like, okay, breathe into this section as I like press down or something like that. And it's the same concept. I mean, you don't even have to get a massage. Sometimes if you just injure yourself, they might say, they might press it down and say, okay, breathe into this Mm -hmm. and then breathe out. So, you know, I think, it's definitely possible <laughs> to breathe in and out of a chakra point. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And breathing, breathing with any magical craft is such an important thing because your breath determines the pace of your body and connecting your body with your mind, with your spirit is like, that is magic. Yep. And, um, and like a good way to start practicing is like, put your hand over where that chakra is in your body, put it over your heart, put it over your solar plexus, whatever, and breathe it and try to get your hand to move. So... Yeah, that's just a good place to start where, like, if you're really breathing into that part, you will be moving your hand. So, um, we left off at the heart. Moving up next is the throat chakra. This one is blue. Yes. Mm -hmm. Blue. Yes. Um, And I love the throat chakra personally because it is a, even though it is higher up on the chakras, it is still very grounding for me in some way. And it's also great for heightening intensity and heightening emotion so you see in a lot of religious practices singing and intonations and stuff like that like I mean yes like religions like Christianity and stuff they have hymns and things like that but I love in like Hindu culture deep ohms like the way my high priestess always taught me is when you're like calling to the elements and stuff you use the chakra and it's not like you're singing it it is like you are trying to vibrate every vocal cord you have to send out that vocal energy. So it's not just like, um, it's like, um, like you can <laughs> feel the power yeah. behind it. Because that's some what purpose with that. Yeah, that's what the elements will sit up and listen for. They're not going to like, oh, if you sing to them, like they can ignore you. <laughs> like you need to call to them with a power in your voice. So you need to be invoking like like making them come to you yes exactly be very commanding with your presence and using your vote your um throat chakra is a great way to do that and even if you're not putting vocal behind it breathing is powerful and especially if you're trying to connect with other elements or other people like breathing with people helps you get in sync with them and so you're both on the same page so if you're doing any kind of magical practice with someone if you're trying to heal someone if you're breathing with them you're connecting with them and your magic with them is going to be like 10 times more effective because you're temporarily it's like you're plugging your phone into your laptop it's (laughs) like you are temporarily just joining yourself with them and like sort of mind melting a little bit um energetically speaking Mm -hmm. but 
Um, so then the next chakra up would be your third eye, which is... Your crown. Got a big reputation. There's some controversy on the colors of these last two ones. Some people will say it, your third eye is indigo and your crown is violet. Some people will say your third eye is purple and your crown is opalescent white, sort of, rainbowy. It honestly doesn't matter that much. It's more to do with, like, the crystals where, like, a lot of the ones associated with your third eye will be, like, purple ones. And then a lot of the ones associated with your crown will be, like, opalescent angel aura, more rainbowy, clear white ones. Um, and we'll get to what the crown chakra symbolizes and why that makes sense next. But with your third eye, this is... So when I first talked about the root chakra, that was, like, all things basic, physical, human now that we've made it all the way up to the third eye, that is all things intellectual, abstract, and unseen. So that's why this one is also used in a lot of magic because it has to do with what you can see beyond the veil. You've got your two physical eyes that you can see the mundane world with. Your third eye is for the things that are not in this mundane world but are still here, sort of between the shadows, beyond the veil. It is for seeing energy and interpreting things that aren't necessarily there. Um, so yeah, if you... If you sort of look at really intuitive people, maybe you think of them as having a very keen third eye, but it's, yeah, it's the part of your body where, like, if you really focus on it, it's going to help you see the unseen and pick up on things that other people might not be able to sense or maybe even, like, know things before they're going to happen. It's very intuitive. Um yeah, so one of the things, so Allison did a workshop on chakras. Yeah, this is why I'm spewing all this garbage about chakras. <laughs> I studied it. <laughs> yeah, so she knows she knows way more about chakras than I do. Um, but one of the things I took away from her workshop is I'm actually happy that I remembered the names of the things that she went through. And I was like, oh, yay, I picked something up. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the one thing that I kind of had like an oh, man, I am dumb moment is that I realized that the chakras go in like Roy G. Biv order. Mm-hmm. So red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo violet yes (laughs) i was like oh it's like the colors of the rainbow i am dumb Mm -hmm. for not realizing that um so yeah so if you have trouble remembering the colors there you go Mm -hmm. (laughs) we can join the club um so you mentioned something about things that are unseen so Mm -hmm. you know what else are things that are unseen the fey um i need to still do the crown chakra first oh wow just kidding (laughs) but we will get on to the fey ignore me a lot of people forget about the crown chakra yeah. it's fine it's kind of it is kind of like a backseat chakra because it's what it represents and this chakra is actually not even on your body it's right above your body right floating above your head like a ghost um like a queen ghost it is like the opalescent or if you're adding in indigo you can say it's purple but in my humble opinion it's opalescent um (laughs) that was as it was taught to me and it has to do with representing your higher self that you are always reaching for that you're always looking right above your head to try to get get up to it is a part of yourself that isn't your actual self but it's who you're always striving to become so yeah that's kind of cute that it floats above you when that's the meeting yeah yeah so People don't do a lot of work with this chakra because, I mean, and they should do more, but it's like, it's also, it's such an abstract thing, like, almost more abstract than the sacral chakra, um, but it's also, like, everything that you are striving to be in, it's helpful to sort of think of, like, who do you want to be, because the clearer you can picture that, the more solid you can make a plan to get there, so, yeah. True that. Moving on to the fae. <laughs> uh, I fucking... 
I love this topic. I know little about this topic, but I love it. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. Gosh, these are like a lot of topics I don't know about, which is why I'm like, Allison, please help me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know very little about the Fae. Um, I have done some work kind of involving the Fae. You were there for that, right? I don't know if I was. Oh, never mind. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so... I know people like leaving offerings out for them and there's all this folklore about like going into like like don't ever go into a fairy circle or a fae circle which is like sometimes like a circle of like mushrooms or shit you might see like in a field or something. Um, the fae do have different names. Sometimes people don't call them fairies. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think you want to you want to say about them working um, with them or Yeah, so pertaining to the fae, I haven't done a whole lot of work with them, but um I guess the fae can kind of be seen as, like, a concept similar to the god and the goddess where, like, some people believe there's physically a god and a goddess sitting up in the in the clouds calling the shots, and then there's people like me who believe that the god and the goddess kind of represent a broader concept of, like, light and dark, you know, polarity, the sort of, like, opposing forces. That's how I see the fae, where, like, they're not necessarily physical fairies to me, but they are, like, the spirits of nature that kind of are, like, the whimsical forest energies i don't know if i would ever think of them as something i could actually see like walking on the forest floor they're more like concepts like the wind the leaves the flowers the trees things like that and um i did used to leave offerings out for them back when i lived in chicago there was a tree right outside my bedroom window that would like it was really close to the house and so it had to be cut down and like the branches would tap on my window and scare me at night because I was a little kid and oh my I thought gosh. I thought there was a robber trying to get in I would like freak out but um it's the fae yeah the tree had to get taken down and I remember after mm-hmm. that tree got taken down I felt so guilty because I didn't realize it was like gonna fall on the house I thought it was my fault that it was taken down and I was like oh no I'm the reason this tree's not here and so I would go out and every full moon I would, like, leave some little offerings on the tree stump for, like, the little spirits to sort of, like, apologize to for their tree being gone. Um, And eventually, like, moss started to grow like crazy on that tree stump. And one of the little folklore things about the fae is that, like, you can tell the fae have been there or live there if there's a lot of moss growing. And that's why you see so much in the forest is because that's where a lot of the fae live. Um, I didn't know that's sweet. Yeah, it is sweet. So, and I would make fairy gardens too, like, with the little, little tiny chairs that you get from Michael's and stuff like that, you know, trying to make my gardens cute and, like in the morning even if there like wasn't a storm or anything like a lot of the little chairs would be knocked over and stuff and I'd be like oh the fairies were here you know but yeah it's it's cool and like if you're not doing it for aesthetic purposes just like working with the fae um for energy work and nature work especially if you're like a very naturey witch and you like taking you know like if you're taking anything from nature and you ask permission first some people believe that that's asking the fae for permission because like if you're asking the tree then the spirit of the tree is like one of the fae i suppose if that's how you conceptualize it but it's all about what makes sense to you there you go okay so um the next thing i want to jump to is ritual etiquette um now Ritual etiquette and somebody also, I kind of want to see if I could tie in like some spell casting stuff in this too. So before we go into this topic, I just want to remind you guys that like while Alice and I are both initiated gardenarians, like what we're going to explain to you is like our personal opinion (laughs) and it's not reflective of the gardenarian tradition. So don't take anything we say like of that tradition because that's 
mm-hmm. that's not like where we're going with this. <laughs> this is our own personal practice here. Yes. Um, okay, so ritual etiquette. So some people have asked me, not just etiquette, but like how do you perform a ritual? So um, yeah, so the way I perform rituals, and I'm sure Allison's probably similar to this the two is for me there's always an opening like a middle and then a closing so the opening usually involves casting the circle um so there's a bunch of different ways you could do this it's really your preference some people like to physically draw out a circle like chalk or flowers or seashells or whatever properties they may want for the ritual um some people just like to use incense and they'll put it around themselves like in a circle some people like to physically try to move the energy when they're drawing the circle do you have any certain way you like doing it um yeah i mean the whole setup and beginning of any ritual is about creating sacred space so really whatever makes it sacred space for you is how you should go about setting up your circle so a lot of times you see people calling to the elements designating a circle which has no beginning and no end so it's very symbolic of like the reincarnation, the cycle of life, the the Earth Mother sort of concept. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and you can like make any space sacred space. It's about it's about what you put into that. And if you like set up that boundary and say like no negative energy here, then you can make that plop that positive energy field wherever you want to and make that your ritual space. Yeah. So when casting a circle, I always liked starting in the east with air. Um, Because that's just how I used to read about it online. And (laughs) And it's where the sun rises. So it's a starting point. It's a beginning, naturally. Yep. So for my personal practice, what I would do is I would usually do something for each element as I would get there. So for air, I would, I don't, gosh, it's been a little while, but I would sometimes like, um, you know, maybe blow some air out and be like, oh, I'm calling forth air. And then just like a physical demonstration of it. And then for fire, I would turn um, and I I would turn to the south and then I would maybe like light a candle in that corner or light some incense or something. And then for west, for water, I would I would always have moon water on hand and I would actually like offer some up to the gods or the elements. And then I would personally drink some. And then for the north, for east, I would always get down on the ground because I would try to do this outside as much as possible. And I would always kind of just like touch the earth and the grass and kind of like, you know, give it like a silent thanks while I was there. Um, but that was more of an elemental practice of doing things. I would always try to do something for each element as I was going around it when I was casting my circle. But um, it was very much about calling forth the quarters into my personal practice to create a sacred ritual space. So, yeah. Um, the other thing too... In my outdoor rituals, I've never, well, I don't want to say never, but I didn't have a formal altar set up. I kind of just used a table I had outside, and that was, like, part of a bigger table. I used, like, a little corner of it, but indoors, I do have my altar in the middle of my circle. Um, I think a lot of people do do that, but I guess, I don't know, it's really up to you what you feel comfortable with and what resources you have to do that. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, an altar is not necessary in all practices and stuff. Like, literally, I have heard stories of people just doing a quick sort of mental, like, ritual sitting in the bathtub. Like, Mm -hmm. you can kind of, or just sitting on the train, wherever. Like, you don't, just as long as all the components are there in some form and your own intention can be enough, um, a lot of people, it helps them to have the ritual of having, like, you know, 
a representation of each element, a representation of the god and the goddess, a sacred tool, something like that to help set up and designate that sacred space because it helps them to have the visual and the physical thing to ground them and make their practice solid. Yeah. Um, Yeah, but you don't need that. You can very much just have intention or like little representations that you just find around you. Anything can can be incorporated. Yep. So um, moving along um, the next part. So after you create your sacred space, however you're able to do that, most people kind of have a middle where they'll maybe do a spell casting or maybe even do a meditation. Um, I want to put this out there because I've had a lot of people ask me. My personal opinion is that I would try to do this, but that I don't think you need to cast a circle every single time you're doing a spell or every single time you're doing a meditation. If you don't really have the time for that, but you feel like you can just kind of mentally project a sacred space around you, I think that's good. Yeah, and that's especially gets easier if you're using the same sacred space over and over again, or if you have an altar at like one place in your house and you're just using that same spot again and again, it kind of naturally just organically becomes a sacred space and you feel like you don't need to really say it anymore (laughs) yep exactly and then um two other things with um being in a circle too one always walk dsl which means count or means uh yeah clockwise Mm -hmm. do not walk counterclockwise it is rude um it's it flux with the flow of energy just just trust me on it don't do it yeah similarly i mean some practices might not um follow this but just like the way that i sort of learned things was don't use your left hand with your tools because that's considered to be with poor intent. Of course, if your left is your dominant hand, that can be a bit more... um, Tricky. (laughs) Yeah, that can be a bit more like you can switch that up if you need to. But usually your right hand, especially if that's your dominant hand, is seen as like the proper hand for positive magic. And left-handed magic is more like you have bad intentions. That's when you might walk counterclockwise. That's when you might be up to no good. So don't do it (laughs) (laughs) now if you live in like australia or something i think like it's it's backwards there um so because of like the hemisphere so wow i didn't know that yeah that's a whole other topic for another day i live in america and i don't really know too much about that but i have heard that some people do walk wittershins and that's also the same reason why some people um celebrate yule in june because of the different hemispheres Um, like they have their christmas down there when we have our summer sort of speak like well yeah they have like the cold winter Anyway, <laughs> getting back to this. So yeah, so don't walk uh, Wittershins, which is counterclockwise. And also, if you are going to leave the circle, you should try to cut in and out of the circle. So don't just walk out of the circle once you create that sacred space. If you need to cut in and out, there's a bunch of different ways you could do this. But I would just maybe just energetically go up to like a corner and, and just, I don't know. It's officially opening and closing the door yeah. behind you so that nothing gets in or gets out while you're away. And then when you come back in, you kind of like reopen it and reseal it again so that all the garbage stays out and all the good stays in. Yeah. So if that means you need to like announce to your circle corner or something like, listen, I'm going to come in and out. That's fine. But like, don't step out of that circle once you're in there. If you can try to just stay in there the whole time. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, The next part, I guess, is just closing. I would recommend if you're opening a circle, always close the circle. You don't want to keep that energy just stagnant sitting there. It's also kind of rude if you're calling forth the the quarters and then you kind of just leave them hanging and you don't Mm -hmm. dismiss them. Uh, I would not do that. I would always. And it's also good etiquette to dismiss them in a way where you're like, thank you for coming. Thank you for attending this rite and stuff. Like, make it. 
Thank them. Thank them because they are they are all powerful spirit beings and stuff, and they are showing up to help you in your practice. So it's just it's polite to say thank you. Yeah. If you're feeling ridiculous the first couple times you cast a circle, that's probably normal. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, definitely. There's like, you know, practicing in a few times, seeing what comes most naturally to you. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess the last thing on etiquette I would say that I would want to kind of interject is um, if you do use tools in your practice and you're like sharing them with people or showing them to other people, don't ever take a tool out of someone's hand. At least this is the way I was taught. So, I mean, take it with a grain of salt. But um, the way I was taught, if you ask to see somebody's tool, then they should hold it in their hand, in their right hand, flip it upside down and physically put it in your hand. Don't ever take it out of their hand because that's sort of, it is showing sort of the, um, like the respect and consent that is needed to um, have respectful practice with others. Yep. Um, one other thing I want to mention, too, because I think we might be a little over time. Oh, gosh, we are. So- <laughs> we are thinking we would, you know, be, have a short episode, but we actually had so much to talk about. Yeah, and we didn't even cover everything, but that's okay. Um, I've mentioned something before in one of my episodes about consecration. And if you're wondering when you should do this, I would always recommend to consecrate in a circle. So actually cast a circle and then and maybe instead of doing a spell per se, do that as like your middle part, like your work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. True. That's yeah. a really good time to do that. Yes. Help Don't keep your tools clean. <laughs> exactly. Spiritually. You want to spiritually claim them as your own. You want to cleanse them. And you don't want to just do that when you come home from work standing like in the kitchen. Like you want to make that a sacred experience for both you and your tool because you're, you know, it's like initiating your tool. Like exactly. I think I said that once before. Yeah, it's like I think we have talked about. Yeah, that when you initiate yourself, you are bringing yourself into a sacred space and then cleansing and like renaming and blessing yourself. You want to treat your tools with that same respect because they are like your partners that you're going to be working with in in your um in your circle from now on and stuff. So you want them to be just as pure and sacred as as you treat yourself. Yep, and consecration can just be something as simple as, you know, standing over some incense or some salt water and blessing it and saying, listen, I'm going to put this stuff over my tool and I'm also blessing my tool for consecration for my personal use in this practice. And that that's all you really need to do. It doesn't have to be a big ordeal. Don't stress out about it if it is something that you want to do. Um, and if you're wondering what tools you'd even consecrate, I would say if you have like a wand or an athame or um working tools really would be the biggest thing that i'd recommend and once you consecrate them don't use them for what they're not for if you consecrate a ritual blade don't use it to cut open a bag of chips that's not (laughs) what it's for anymore now it is for directing spiritual energy it is not for mundane everyday use otherwise you know it's going to lose its shine it's going to get dirty so use it for what it's for once you've consecrated it (laughs) plus it's disrespectful to use you know, a ritual knife <laughs> to go and open a bag of chips or open a letter especially, after you consecrate it. Yeah, especially in, like, the practice that we do and stuff. Like, it's a big no-no. Like, you treat your athame with hella respect. Yep. It's an extension of you. <laughs> it is, yes. All right, guys. Well, that's pretty much it for today. Um, thank you, Allison, for yes. sharing all of your wonderful witching knowledge. Thank it's you always for so appreciated. Oh, yes. Hopefully, I will get to see you guys in future episodes. Yeah, hopefully mm-hmm. so. All right. Sorry, it went a little over, but I hope you guys found some really interesting things. And yeah, well, I will talk to you later, and hopefully, Allison will too. Yes. Toodaloo. <laughs> Toodaloo. See you later. Mm-hmm.